0: Heavenly Father, when we pause to consider that You have given us the great privilege, the holy call, to fit praises on our lips that would be directed toward You as worship fit for Your royalty, Your omnipotence, Your glory, and Your majesty, majesty it truly is a humbling thought indeed. Father, I pray that our hearts would quicken With such joy as we consider the glorious gift of being ransomed and set apart. Lord consecrated unto you by the power of Christ's blood to lift praises to your holy name. We thank you that we are among the ecclesia, the called out ones, the church, the bride of Jesus Christ. Who now fellowship together according to the terms of union that we have in the Gospel. We thank You that we have been adopted into the family of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, such that we can call God our Father, Christ our brother, and each other, sisters and brothers in Christ. What a glorious thought it is, Father, that You have totally regenerated, changed us, and set our feet upon the rock, Jesus Christ. And now, Father, I pray, as a result of the fruit of Your Spirit's use of these means this morning, the preaching of Your Holy Word, the joining and worship together among the saints, the fellowship of the Beloved, I pray that the use of these means in the Spirit's hands would equip and build Your church, that it would sharpen, convict, and correct, Lord, that it would send us, Lord, into the harvest field with sickles sharpened to reap for your glory more souls that might populate the kingdom of heaven, singing praises to your holy name. In all of this, we are so thankful that you have preserved for us one more day to lift up and glorify your holy name. And thank you for this time together in your word. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. What a great privilege to spend some time in the Lord's Word this morning. I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28, we will consider this morning. As you're turning there, this message will be structured according to a sequence of events that happened as Christ now turns His face toward Jerusalem to go up, to ascend, that is, to that holy city And we know from His proclamation and from the testimony of all of Scripture that He will go to die. And as we read in the passage and in the context in Matthew 20, we find that in so doing He will fulfill prophecy and He will fulfill the ransom price for our very souls. So this morning I invite you to stand with me with your Bibles open to Matthew 20 and let us read together, follow me as I read, verses 17 through 28. 17-28. through And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death, and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and He will be raised on the third day. We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, Verse 25, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord lord it over them, And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, no doubt is fresh in the minds of the disciples, and perhaps in their carnal minds, the only thing they heard was this promise. Again, a chapter previous, Jesus said to them, verse 28, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now that verse alone, Sounds like promises of riches, influence, wealth, authority, everything that an ambitious person could dream of in this life. But Jesus did not mean for that verse to stand alone, neither in his message of the kingdom of God, nor in the minds of the disciples. And so he includes in that admonition and promise of a future day yet on the horizon, all of the context in the verses previous and following, which includes Matthew 20 verse 1, that we uh, discovered last week through 16, which is the parable of the laborers of the vineyard, which communicates to us that if there are those who are privileged in God's providence to have a position, position of influence in His kingdom, it is not because they earned it or deserved it, but instead that God was pleased to use them and His greater plan to His chief goal of glorifying and magnifying His holy name. But in one sense... Whether the weak and the lowly, the midget or the mighty, everyone who comes into the kingdom receives the great reward of eternal life. And in so doing, Christ declares that the hierarchy in the kingdom, positions of importance and positions of lowliness, are entirely different than that which constitutes glory in this life. He says in verse 16 of 19, Matthew 19, So the last will be first, and the first last. This was a reiteration of the words he opened his parable with in verse 30 of chapter 19. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This theme of turning on its head the notions and the order of this world, its authorities, its kingdoms, its rules, and its empire continues into Christ's admonition as he interacts with those questioning him, interacts with his disciples and their slow learning curve. He says in verse 27 of Matthew 20, for instance, that whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to, serve, to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. There is a sequence of events here, and that is also the title of this morning's message. A sequence of events that in our passage this morning begins with a note of context involving setting and purpose and journey. Verse verse 17, it says, And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the twelve disciples aside. So there's a note in the context that Jesus is heading towards somewhere. And that somewhere is Jerusalem. And we find out in the context why he is going. And this sequence of events as it unfolds in the gospel record is used. It's utilized by Christ as an opportunity to show that there is also a sequence of events in the kingdom of God. In other words, in the distant future, there will be a time of a new heavens and a new earth. There will be a glorious throne, as he has said in verse 28 of 19, and a new world. But between now and then, there is an order to things, and Christ wants his disciples to understand their call to embrace his sufferings, even as he is showing them a pattern For their own service and commitment to the gospel as he goes to Calvary. Thus we find the road to regeneration. Or the new world or in the Greek as 1928 gives us palingenesia. Palingenesia is this word meaning regeneration. Born again earth. A new historical reality. A new world. The message of Matthew 19 and 20 is that this road to regeneration new birth of not just our souls, but all things, goes through the gospel. The road to regeneration goes directly through the cross. There is a sequence of events here, and there are no exceptions, no detours, no alternate routes of any kind. Hope and glory and peace and future goes through the course dictated and fulfilled by the Prince of Peace. And this message hits us much to our carnal dismay. We would wish there'd be a shortcut. We would place our hope and trust in other more tangible and measurable paths to success. But in declaration of the futility and sinfulness of all of these, Christ's message is clear. Hope and the future rest eternal always goes through the gospel. This chapter in Matthew's record leading up to the cross employs the occasion of Christ's own path, His own journey to Calvary, in order to do something, to teach us some things, and in so doing, to redirect our attention and affections, lest we, or His disciples, in the context here, be distracted by the perceived glory of judging from twelve thrones. Again, in Matthew nineteen twenty-eight, Jesus continues to emphasize the divinely orchestrated sequence of events at this time, and the value of this reorientations is difficult. Uh, that is to say, this is a difficult concept for mere human ears. Those who would hear these words of Christ must have ears to hear. But as they listen and as they learn, they will find that this sequence of events is something that gives us a pattern for how God works in history and how God works in salvation. And it will shoot down the idols that we sometimes cling to uh, that would compete with Christ for a better way to a hopeful future. Perhaps no one can improve, as far as commentaries go, on Calvin himself when he writes the following, commenting on Matthew 20. Calvin says this, Is he not worse than stupid, who admits so many deaths, entertains himself at ease by drawing pictures of triumph? Later he says, For as in battle, the greatest coward is the keenest to seize the booty. So in the kingdom of Christ, none are more eager to obtain the superiority than those who shrink from all the annoyance which attends toil. Most properly, therefore, does Christ enjoin in those who are puffed up with vainglory to keep by their post. What does Calvin mean to convey here? Well, when the mother of the sons of Zebedee comes to him, comes to Christ, that is, in verse 20, kneels before him and asks him for something, this misguided desire is pointed out by Calvin as akin to a soldier girded for battle in the front lines of the enemy playing video games while bullets are flying off his armor and ricocheting off his comrades in battle. He is celebrating and victory and feasting while still the war rages all around him. Or instead of fulfilling the mission that his general gives him to conquer the enemy on the horizon, he instead draws pictures of his success. He writes graffiti on the walls. I was here. You ever read that kind of graffiti sketched on the walls of important places? You know, thousands of people say, you know, Abby was here, John was here. And we look at those things and we think, what did you really accomplish? So you came a distance to a certain place to carve your name in something temporal? Oh, great achievement. And in the same way, it is easy for us to prematurely celebrate victory when Christ has a job and a battle for us to do right now. Or to get distracted with false notions of what we should spend our energy and affections on when Christ has a job to do for us right now. What does a Christian life look like? What does a Christian life look like? Christ has already declared that it is something akin to his own sufferings. In Matthew chapter 10 and 16, as we'll find in the course of this message, he has delivered to the disciples twice already of a prophecy of his own sufferings, as he does now a third time, and a call that they might join him in taking up their own cross and following him. But instead of doing this, the disciples are like those who in a great crisis get distracted and begin stealing and pilfering the shops and the stores in the middle of a natural disaster. One more illustration before we get into the meat of the text this morning. You'll recall it's burned on the consciousness of all of us Americans who are tuned into the news in recent years. The great disaster in New Orleans... Remember the Hurricane Katrina that brought in that tidal wave of destruction that flooded the entire city? What were some of the most despicable pictures that we saw on the news feeds in that particular time in our history? Well, I submit to you, there was more depravity on display than merely the forces of nature that move about and in a moment destroy man. In fact, man and his sin deserves such judgment. And God is in charge of even the weather systems of this earth. no. The greatest display of depravity, perhaps, in that incident was people who took advantage of the crisis to go and to rob stores, to steal jeans and designer shoes and flat-screen TVs. And what a ridiculous picture. Floating a whole pile of electronics through a flooded street on a few things you cobbled together. And you think to yourself, you could be out saving a life or you could be running from this disaster. But instead, you, all of those who were... Caught, red-handed, stealing at a time like this were totally misguided. they were acting in carnal vainglory. they were distracted in their affections, and instead of having a realistic picture of the danger that they were in and what they ought to do because in the context of their surroundings, they instead turned their attention to the carnal things of this world and I would submit to you, no less foolish and no less distracting are those who serve Christ simply for selfish gain. And when they pray, all of their requests are directed for personal, selfish, self-betterment, akin to asking, may I sit at your right hand, may I sit at your left, and not wanting to join in with the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, not counting it joy to suffer for His name's sake. And so that is a bit of what sets the theme and the tone for our passage this morning. To explore it in a little bit more systematic detail, let me give you a heading for this morning's message. The heading is Teachable Moments on the Road to Calvary. And let's explore four of them today. First of all, ascent to Jerusalem. Secondly, Jesus interjects. And that happens in verses 17 through 19. Thirdly, a mother interrupts, verses 20 through 24. And fourthly, Jesus corrects in verse 25 through 28. So these are teachable moments on the road to Calvary. On the course to Jerusalem, there are four times where the progress walking this journey is interrupted. And, uh, and that's what we're going to address, or three times, excuse me, where the progress to Jerusalem is inter- interrupted. And each one, whether it's a positive moment or a negative example, provides the opportunity for us to learn something about the kingdom of God. And we see it in the context of, of this sequence of events. Let's consider the context a little more fully in, under this heading, though, point number one, ascent to Jerusalem, or going up to Jerusalem. Turn with me to Psalm 130, if you will. While you're turning there, let me read again how this uh, section of the Scripture is introduced to us. It says in verse 17, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is pausing to note that there is a goal, there is a destiny that is of importance here, and there is a going up, an ascending, there is an arrival. And I would submit to you, in the context of greater Scripture, this journey takes on a particular significance. In the book of Psalms, for instance, we find some of the background of these very moments in the gospel revealed to us in the Psalms of Ascent. Psalms 120 through 134 were Psalms of Ascent. And it seems, in the context of Scripture, these were Psalms that were likely sung when those who would go to the feasts, including the Passover, and would ascend, therefore, to Jerusalem up that mountain would joyfully sing, join in song with their comrades on that journey. And they would sing psalms like this. Josh read this to us this morning. Let's read it again. Psalm 130, verses 1 through 8, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. That you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. O Israel. Hope in the Lord. And with the Lord there is. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel. From all his Iniquities. In this psalm, as an example of the heart's cry of the believing, covenanted, faithful community for redemption and for Messiah, we can see the significance of this moment when Christ Himself begins to ascend the hill of Jerusalem and ultimately to ascend the hill of Calvary. In this journey setting in Matthew chapter twenty. It illustrates in the instructions of Christ and in the kingdom truth that just like His path to Calvary follows a sequence of events, so does the kingdom of God. There were those who ascended to Jerusalem, who went and took that journey in the past, and they did so to sacrifice and partake in the Passover feast. But those who understood the significance of that moment did so in faith that one day their Messiah would ascend and would follow that same journey that they were following. It would be the son of David. It would be the sprout that grew up of the stump of Jesse. It would be the horn of salvation. It, he would be the final hero, Messiah and sacrifice, the once for all solution to bring in that new heavens and that new earth. To bring in that palingenesia, that regenerated future and existence. Psalm 130 is a song that was sung by temple worshipers on their way to Zion. And these worshipers, if they understood the heart of that text, were longing for redemption. Longing for redemption. Flash forward hundreds of years. Matthew 20, verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem... This song of ascents gives way to the sacrifice, the priest, the prophet, the king himself ascending the hill of Zion. He takes his disciples aside on the way and he says to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And this message of ascending to Jerusalem culminates in verse 28, I submit to you, when he says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The cry for redemption. To be bought back for sin on account of the people's sin. Was fulfilled in the ransom price of Christ himself. When he would ascend that hill. And ultimately be crucified for their sins. Thus the heart cry of Psalm 130 verse 4. Will be fulfilled in Christ. When the worshippers cried out. But with you there is forgiveness. That you may be heard. You see, there was anguish in the soul of everyone who understood they had fallen short of the glory of God. That they failed in their own law keeping. That they were the lawless and the sinners. In verse 3 of Psalm 130, the the worshipers would cry, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand if the Lord is just, if He keeps record? A record of wrongs If he sees into the inner constitution of a man, then surely all are condemned before his omniscient gaze. who can stand? There is but one. and this but one was Jesus Christ himself, who himself was ascending to Jerusalem, and Matthew 20: 2017, and in him and by his ascent. Redemption would be purchased for the faithful. Those who preceded Him and those who would follow after. Even those of us today who gather here in celebration of this great event. The ascent to Jerusalem is a teachable moment on the road of Calvary. It is a sequence of events that follow. That are absolutely intrinsic and predestined before time began. And central to our very salvation and hope in Christ. And so we take note of them. And we see how Jesus marks these milestones and stops and interjects and teaches his disciples. That leads us to the second teachable moment on the road to Calvary this morning. Jesus interjects. Notice that the progress to Jerusalem is halted for a moment as Jesus pulls the twelve aside to take this occasion to teach them something about the kingdom. Again, verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem... He took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And what does He tell them? What is of such great importance that He would pause or take a rest, a brief respite on this journey where He has set His face like flint to go to Calvary? What is of such importance that He would interject at this moment to call the disciples' attention to something of significance? Well, it is indeed the work of Calvary and the gospel itself detailed in verses 18 and 19 as we read Jesus' own words. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And He will be raised on the third day day. Jesus interjects, pulls the twelve disciples aside, and here Christ demonstrates himself to be, if you will, both the conductor and the instrument in the symphony of redemption. This moment was of extreme importance. Thus, we see this as the case even in the context as it is the third time that Christ has prophesied His own death and resurrection. Let us touch briefly on the two prior times so that we can feel again the weight of this moment. Turn back to Matthew 16. Matthew 16. Matthew 16, the disciples again are in a state of misunderstanding as they are wont to be during this time. The Holy Spirit had not yet visited them with the eye-opening experience of Pentecost. Yet there was revelation unfolding all around them, even through the words of Christ himself. Here was no exception, 1621 it says. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from me, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance for me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Again, it's a call to the attention, calling the attention of the disciples to see the sequence of events in the kingdom of God. This must happen. It was prophesied of old, it will be fulfilled in my work. Listen, Peter, you are responding with the doubt and the blindness of the satanic one. Of the, of the enemy who would blind you from the hope and of the truth of Christ. Listen and find yourself changed by the message of the gospel. He goes on to say in verse 24, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would lose his life, save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He goes on to detail in that section of the coming glorious kingdom. The fruit of the future. Yet there was again this sequence of events. And in that sequence there is a call for us to be crucified with Christ. Turn back with me a few more pages still. And let us read in Matthew 10 verse 38 where Christ words. This is where as far as I recall the term cross first appears in the text says, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's another one of those moments where there's a call to those who would follow Christ to join in his own sufferings. And he employs that powerful language. In Matthew 17, verse 22, it says, and as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So we see how Jesus had taken advantage of every opportunity to emphasize to the disciples the importance of things that were to come. He was both the conductor and he was the instrument. That is to say, in Jesus prophesying these events, He was showing his disciples that they did not come as a surprise to him. And he was not uh, overtaken by the authority of Rome, by the scribes and Pharisees, by the false accusations, by the tribunals of his day. There was nothing that had power over Christ. Christ himself declared to Pilate that you would have no authority unless it had first been granted to you by his Father in heaven. He says that no one takes my life. But I give it of my own accord. And this is never more evident than when Christ, prior to the moment of his being subjected to the horrible, humiliating persecution and death as a common and reprobate criminal that Rome had to offer. It is never more evident his sovereignty over these events than when he prophesied the very thing that would happen to him. Christ showed that he was the conductor of these events, the trinity Itself, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had covenanted; they had agreed before time began. And it says in the Word that, in, a, in so much as He was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, that to say that these events came as a surprise to Christ is indeed the highest form of heretical uh, falsity, and it is to do a great injustice to the text. These things were indeed planned before the foundation of the world and Christ himself identified the milestones and proved to his disciples that he was Lord and God and he was also the man who would be sacrificed for their sins. The conductor and the instrument in the symphony of redemption. The priest and the sacrifice, the power to save, and also the power of redemption or the sacrifice itself, the only one that would be a sufficient substitute for yours and my sin. This is what Jesus interjects with. This is the teachable moment on the road to Calvary. This interjection includes three elements, his condemnation, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And Jesus proclaiming the events that would soon come, he even identifies the way in which he will be turned over to the authorities. He will be done so in this term by being delivered over. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. There is a very acute specificity that Jesus predicts of the events that are soon to befall him. And the, the, the word for delivered over in the Greek is paradidomi, paradidomi, which means to be handed over, double-crossed, betrayed, or abandoned. It's not just that a series of unfortunate events will unfold in front of us. It's not that, oh, we'll be diff- entering difficult circumstances. Jesus isn't saying ambiguously, I have a bad feeling in my gut about the future. He is telling them with specific prophecy the way that he will be turned over. And he also tells them that not only will be he be handed over, double-crossed, and betrayed by those in the close and trusted group that followed him, even among the twelve, namely Judas Iscariot, but he also tells them to whom he will be delivered over. He says that he will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and then they will condemn him to death. And then there's a second uh, delivering over, betrayal that will happen in verse 19. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. Judas will betray Christ to the uh, religious authorities. The religious authorities will betray Christ to the Gentiles. And so in this condemnation, the implication of the death of Christ will fall on all peoples. Both Jews and Gentiles will be guilty of crucifying the Lord of glory. And when he is delivered over to them, he will be mocked and flogged and crucified. Thus Jesus says in great detail the kind of sufferings and passion that he will endure. In light of this, again we note the Greek, this would be an absolute shock to the hearer. We can almost feel, the uh, if, we, if we get into the historical context of one like Peter, who would hear this for the first time and say, never let it be, We can feel the shock and the weight of this if we just simply place ourselves in first century shoes for a moment. When Christ uses this term death, he doesn't just mean dying or even being killed again in any uh, old way, but he refers to a specific cause of death, which is in itself the most horrific circumstance imaginable, especially to the Jew, the cross or crucifixion, stroros, these are the terms in the Greek that refer to the instrument of destruction developed by the Phoenicians, adopted by the Greeks, perfected by the Romans, in which even archeolo- archaeological evidence today shows us the kind of death and humiliation happens to someone in these circumstances, namely crucifixion. There are pairs of heel bones that have been found in, ancient, uh, Israel, in the area of ancient Israel with a spike going straight through such that the victim's feet were turned sideways and the, the whole of his body weight rested on a single shaft of steel as he fought for breaths on this instrument of torture and capital punishment. This was the kind of death that Christ himself would endure. He identifies his own cause of destruction by this Greek term for being driven down with stakes and paled on a tree and a cross. He specifically refers to this horrific practice of Roman capital punishment reserved for the most despicable and condemned, and the condemned, the criminal element of their day. And Christ also calls those who would follow him to identify with that very same stuff suffering when he calls them in Matthew ten thirty eight and sixteen twenty four, as we have read, not only to be aware I will suffer and die in this way, but also you must suffer and die in a similar way, take up your cross, your storos, your cross member as it were, and ascend the hill of Calvary with me. Be not ashamed to be identified with what the world will call the worst and the wicked, the outcast and the rejection. Be not afraid to hear the mocking voices and jeering of men. Suffer with me outside the city. Climb the hill of Calvary with me and thus be counted in the fellowship of my own sufferings. This is a message that Jesus interjects with on the road to Calvary. This is the teachable moment. But finally, he closes with this note. It happens so quickly, we must take a closer look so we do not miss it. Verse 19, after he says they will deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, notice this last phrase, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus prophesies his condemnation, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. It seems as if the disciples were so blinded in these moments by the horrific thought of their Messiah being crucified, their hero being drugged through such a horrific circumstance that they missed the final note, this exclamation point of glory, the end of Christ's prophecy. In but three days, He would show Himself to be the champion of the grave, the victor over sin, the Lord over Over political authorities. The Lord over every tongue. Every tribe. Every nation. Every principality. Every rule. Every authority. None shall rise to compete with Christ. But all will be subdued under His conquering footstool. This is the message of Christ's interjection. There will be a condemnation and a crucifixion. But there will be a resurrection. And in so doing Christ will be proven the victor over sin and the victor over death. On our Wednesday study this week, we pause to consider how important resurrection is to the testimony. It is absolutely central to Christianity. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and if you count Him as Lord, if you have received His saving blood a wash over your own soul, you will rise bodily from the dead. In a world where people only consider the temporal, in a world where people only consider as legit and sound and, sci- and scientifically verifiable what they can study and view in a laboratory. Remember that we are not counted among those who judge truth by such carnal means. But we hear the authoritative word of our Messiah. The God who became man and walked among us when he said that the grave will not keep him or hold him down. But on the third day he will rise again, and so will we. When we hear those words of Christ interjecting on the road to Calvary, and when we understand resurrection and its importance in the sequence of events and the life course of our experience and all history, you will experience a flood of confidence that rushes into your heart that will imbue you with a tireless spirit of gospel proclamation. You will not back down from a fight the way you may if you thought only in temporal categories. But you will endure and you will press on and you will not even fear the greatest enemy in front of you. Not even death itself. If our Jesus Christ rose on the third day, does he not have power to resurrect his own? Yes, indeed he does. And we will be raised with him. The third teachable moment this morning on the road to Calvary. We've considered the setting, the ascent to Jerusalem. Secondly, we've considered Jesus' interjection. Thirdly, let's consider a mother's interruption. A mother, in the circumstances, are curious indeed. And verse 20 comes to Christ. Reading again, she says, "Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with their sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, verse 22, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. But he said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. We see there is some conflict here, and there are some gross misunderstandings. It seems like these two, sons of Zebedee, we find them in Mark's gospel confirmed, Mark ten thirty-five as James and John, two of the trusted and close disciples of Jesus. It seems that they probably put their mother up to ask to beseech on their behalf for selfish ends, Uh, the favor of Christ, so that in his kingdom they might sit at his right and at his left. They no doubt remembered in the back of their minds that he had promised for the 12 apostles that followed him that they would one day sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so in their selfish thinking and their carnal affections, they no doubt thought, well, what could be better than sitting on 12 thrones? Well, maybe being in charge of 10 others. And so in their lust for acclaim and And in their lust for power and prestige, they set up their mother more than likely to ask Christ for a special favor. Let's be the first to lobby for the most important position among the 12 of the most important. You see the problem here? First of all, the problem is illustrated by selfish priorities. Selfish priorities. When this woman, this poor lady, asks for this favor, she does so with the desire, no doubt, of her sons in mind for honor and personal gain. She asks Christ that they might have a position of prominence, and in the back of, of the question or underneath the question is this assumption of honor and personal gain. Notice that Jesus actually answers the question, but he does so on the assumption of suffering, with suffering in mind. Again, she says, kneeling before him, after Jesus asks her what she wants, uh, she says, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. And Jesus answers and says, do you know what you are asking? Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said, we are able. And you see here when Jesus, in the, ad, in the address here, shifts, he doesn't address the woman directly, but in, indeed the disciples, thus likely showing that he knew exactly what they were up to. But when he says, you are seeking a position of, when, when he addresses them uh, on, on account of their seeking a position of pro, prominence, he does so with the assumption that if they are to advance in the kingdom the way they wish, that it comes at a sacrifice that almost that is almost too high to count. And he indicates this when he says, are you able to drink the cup? As this mother has interrupted this course to Calvary, we see several things in this teachable moment. First of all, the tendency in the pride and the selfishness of man to have the wrong priorities. But secondly, we find the sobering answer, or we find in Christ's answer to this question, the sober reality of cup, or enduring or drinking or partaking in the cup, or the sufferings of Christ. To better understand this, let me turn you back briefly to the Psalms again in chapter 75. The master of a feast would provide a metaphor for a fellowship at his table. The master of the feast would have a cup in the Near East and the cultures there. And so partaking in the cup would identify you in the fellowship of the means in relationship with the master of the table. Well, in this way, cup could be seen as a good thing. But notice in the context of Scripture that there is a sober reality to a cup as Jesus uses it in this context. For instance, in Psalm 75, verse 8, it says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked will be cut off, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. This cup of foaming wine well mixed is representative of in Psalm 75, 8, the wrath of God that is deserving of sin. In Isaiah 51, there's another reference in a similar context. And here again, we see this cup this metaphor employed to indicate the wrath of God. Isaiah 51, verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Later on, verse 21. Therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people, behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowls of my wrath you shall drink no more. This cup that is employed in the imagery of Matthew 20 indicates that there is a suffering that Jesus will incur and take upon himself that involves the wrath and punishment of sin, that will involve what he has previously prophesied. His mockery, condemnation, crucifixion, flogging, and suffering unimaginable, indeed, suffering for the sins of mankind. Now this story ends. This prophecy itself is receives this glorious capstone in resurrection. That is for the joy set before Christ as Hebrews details. <laughs> excuse me, he endured the suffering, even unto death, but then the perspective point that he draws on when he approaches the disciples who through their mother have asked this question, hey, what will it take? What can you uh, do for us? What favors can you do so that we can be assured of a glorious position similar to yours? We want to sit right alongside you, judging in your kingdom. And he says to them, you are willing, as many words, you are willing to join in the fellowship of my glory, but what you have not considered is is the fellowship of my sufferings. Are you willing to drink my cup? They said to him, no doubt prematurely and without full understanding, we are able. Verse 23, he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. The wrath that was stored up against the wicked Sinners who are saved in Christ was poured out upon him. And this was the suffering of the cross itself. But there is a call, and Jesus issued it before, and he now reiterates it again, that those who are in him would also share in the persecution of themselves such that they would be accounted and identified with Christ in his sufferings. Paul said it this way, paraphrasing, that the sufferings of Christ are being Added, or He is adding to the sufferings of Christ, not that they were insufficient in any way, but instead God had predestined a people who would join Him in His path to Calvary. They would be willing to count it joy to suffer in their own flesh because of the promise of resurrection in the future. Thus we are called to join in this experience of Christ and we are called to be persecuted for His namesake. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ has said in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name's sake. So the occasion of this interruption on the road to Calvary has illustrated selfish priorities and also a sobering cup, but finally it illustrates a sovereign prerogative in other words there are aspects of the kingdom of God that remain a mystery and we and are not for us to determine or to decipher but are in the sovereign hand of God the Father. Verse 22 again it says, "But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father." Thus in this instance we see that Christ affirms the triune nature of the Godhead. God the Father has planned and purposed and predestined. The plight, the future, the fate, if you will, of these disciples themselves, as well as Christ himself going to the cross. And there are certain things that we would like to see. There are certain prayers that we may offer that we may, that we may need to put in a different category. In the sovereign prerogative of God the Father. We may wish to be delivered from a particular persecution. We may want to know if there's an end point in this life when we are hard-pressed, when we are persecuted, when we are struck down. The Word tells us we will not be ultimately abandoned. We will not be totally sifted or destroyed. But as far as how long and how much we are to endure, much of that is in the sovereign hands of God. And we are to trust for sufficient grace for today. His mercies are new each morning, and they are sufficient. It is not for Christ himself in this case to grant the request that these disciples bring him, but instead it is the Father's prerogative to give and to dispense these positions of prominence and authority. Finally, we see the sovereignty of God recorded in the future future at this point, but history to us of James and John themselves. As we see in the book of Revelation, John himself was exiled on account of his Christian faith. History and tradition records later that he was burned in oil for the cause of Christ. There is also a record of James, the same disciple, who said, Hey, we are willing to drink it, and Christ prophesies you will join in the fellowship, something akin to my sufferings. We see in the testimony of history that James himself suffered at the sword of Herod. A martyrs death and so in these examples we see the sequence that uh, interu- through this interruption on the road to calvary of how god works in the life course of his beloved first he calls them out and saves them and he calls them to join in his sufferings and he promises them a future resurrection and glory let us not get the cart before the horse, wishing for heaven as it were right now, not willing to suffer to that end. And finally, this morning, teachable moment on the road to Calvary, Jesus corrects. Jesus admonishes the Pharisees at the close of this, I'm sorry, the disciples at the close of this section by saying in verses 25 through 28, again, but Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the Gentiles, that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in this section, as Jesus corrects the false premise of the disciples' approach, wishing for privilege in the kingdom, as he corrects that, he brings kingdom contrasts to bear. He says that the narcissistic, mom- in the context here, we find that the narcissistic mom- motives then exercising authority that we see in worldly kingdoms are turned on their head and have no place in the kingdom of God. Indeed, every circumstance and every event in the kingdom of God should be embraced as an opportunity to glorify the Lord, not for self-betterment and not to strengthen our position. You see, the way that we are wired in our sin, looking out for number one and seeking our own selfish ends, we are predisposed in our fallenness to use every advantage, every piece of leverage, every little bit of ground gained in front of us to our own selfish betterment, to our own purposes, for our own desires. And so if there's an opportunity before us to get a leg up on the competition, to exercise authority over someone else, to position ourselves more strategically at the expense of others in our sinfulness, we are motivated to move that direction. This is something that becomes more clearly sin to us with each day of our sanctification. And when we identify with the call of Christ, we find in our own, call, in, in our own calling this message, the greatest among you must be servants. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Those who have been conditioned in their heart and in their desires by the gospel, do not run to God in prayer all the time and say, hey, in this situation, what is the most strategic position that you can get me in right now? They don't run to God in prayer and say, hey, I want to be seated at your right hand and on your left. They run to God in prayer and they ask him for endurance, only that he might be glorified even in the wake of their trial. They ask him to open up their eyes for opportunities to lay their life down and to serve their neighbor. They don't look for every occasion to promote themselves and to broadcast their own virtues, but indeed to make themselves small and to broadcast to champion Christ. Along with John the Baptist, who was a great example of this when he said, I must decrease He must increase. And when Christ is apparent in the circumstances that surrounded John, he pointed to the man, he steered his own followers and fans, if you will, to follow this man by saying, Behold the Lamb of God. And in the same way, every believer has a calling to point with his life, his decisions, his desires, and his prayers to the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold Jesus Christ these are the kingdom contrasts that come to the fore Christ did not die for your self-betterment all of these messages that are so popular in our day that probably you know uh Pollute the pages of the lion's share, maybe 75% of the books in your average Christian bookstore. The self-help equivalent of psychological superiority or how to pad your pocketbook by 10 easy biblical principles. All of these things are anathema to the believer. We look for ways to lay down our Christ, our life that Christ be made, be made, uh, be made may be made known and champion among us, that his kingdom and his account may be increased by our sacrifice for his glory, that in our laying down our life for one another and for him, the world might see his glory manifest and not our own, that he might have the crown rights and that he might have everything that he purchased, the rewards of his own suffering. These are the kingdom contrasts that come to the fore as Jesus corrects the predisposition of the disciples. Let's close this morning by considering the ransom price. Last week, we spent a little time in 1 Peter one eighteen, where the apostle declares with Holy Spirit revelation at this point. The same apostle, I remind you, that denied Christ going to the cross was a good idea. The same Apostle, Apostle pronounces from his own epistle these words later on, but with the precious blood of Christ, I should rewind to 18, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like the la- that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In God's providence, I'll again remind you that last week, most of our time was spent in Psalm 49. What was central to the theme of that psalm? Remember, right in the middle, there was this ominous judgment, verses 8 and 9, for the ransom of their life, or back up to verse 7, truly no man can ransom another, or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. But there was faith and a confidence in the author of this psalm as he writes in contrast to this claim or this pronunciation of judgment in verse 15, his own salvation, he says, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me. We also read earlier Psalm 130, this cry for redemption, this cry for ransom. We read in 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19 that the ransom price was, was Jesus Christ's own blood. And we find that this was evident in Christ's own testimony as he corrects the disciples and says in verse 28 again of Matthew 20, Even as the Son of Man came to be served, uh, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Finally this morning, let us turn to one more passage, Revelation chapter 5. This message was preceded, of Jesus' correction at this moment, was preceded by a woman who is on her knees interrupting this pathway to Calvary, begging Christ for a favor. That was her approach to Christ. Jesus corrected it. We might wonder what is the right approach to Christ in light of the truth that He has just espoused to His disciples and through His word to us. Well, I submit to you, it is found in Revelation 5, verses 8 through 14. Listen to the approach of those who assemble around the throne of glory in these passages, it says. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying... and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is a stark contrast to the approach of James and John and their mother to Christ that we see represented in the 24 elders and the four living creatures of Revelation chapter 5 with the full manifest weight of the revelation of Christ as the slain lamb, now the participants in the glorious future that his blood purchased for them, what do they do? They fall down before the lamb, but instead of requesting a favor selfishly, they fall down before him and praise him as they consider the once for all slain lamb and sacrifice of their and all the redeemed world's sins. The ransoming power of His precious blood encourages the saints to endure all things until the full effect of His work is manifest in heaven and earth and history. Let us close in prayer this morning. O Heavenly Father, we thank You that there is a future born-again world and experience that we will celebrate in at the marriage supper, supper of the Lamb, with the saints that fellowship with us in this small room, and with all who fellowship in the temple of your favor, from, from when faith visited our forefathers, until you sign and seal history with your signature, and you call us home to glory. We thank you for your almighty power to save We thank you that there is a purpose and a destiny in the sequence of events between now and then. We pray that you would equip us to have great faith and endurance. Lord, as we suffer for your name's sake, looking forward to the full purchasing power of Christ's blood manifest in our own experience when we join these whom we've just read about The four living creatures, the 24 elders, the myriads of angels, and the millions, perhaps billions of saints, who knows but you, that gather around your throne and as a mighty waterfall sing, worthy, worthy, holy is the lamb that was slain. Thank you, Lord, for the promise of the gospel. May we live in light of it to the glory of your great name, dear Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.